Amen. Well, we are in the midst of a series in the book of Ephesians that we're calling a crash course in Christianity, looking at some of the basic foundations of our faith. And uh, we're all the way up to chapter four today. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter four. And uh, if you'd like to take notes or follow along in your program this morning, there's an outline as well that you can uh, take advantage of. So those are a couple of things uh, for you to make use of. I want you to think about this for a moment. Smells. Smells. How many smells are there? That's an odd question, isn't it? But think about that for a minute. Just maybe start mentally flipping through the pages of your personal smell catalog. What can you think of? Things like burnt toast, shaving cream, grandma's kitchen, pine trees, the list could go on, right? With, with a little effort, you could come up with a, just a, a whole bunch of smells. But putting a number on them would be really difficult, wouldn't it? How does one count the odors of a lifetime, much less all the odors in the whole world? You know, estimates from various scientists and fragrance manufacturers and chemists that know about this stuff, they suggest that humans can detect anywhere from 10,000 to 30,000 unique smells. Isn't that interesting? They found that no two people smell things the same way. And there's a scientific reason for that. And it all has to do with your DNA and science stuff. You know, the genes in you, 400 different genes that, that uh, are the receptors, you know, that work in our nose. And then there's 900,000 plus variations on those genes. And those receptors control all the sensors that determine how we smell all these different smells, odors, fragrances on the list goes. And so a, a given odor, a specific smell will activate a certain suite of receptors in your nose, creating a, a specific signal for the brain. That's interesting, isn't it? I think it's interesting. I don't know if you think it's interesting, but I think it's interesting. Well, I was, I was saying all that because uh, we're going to look at a passage of scripture today about our aroma, our smell. You know, scripture talks a lot about the uniqueness of fragrances. For example, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that Christians spread the fragrance of Christ to others. That means some people will be attracted by our smell and perhaps others will be repelled. In Exodus 29, we learn that God himself says that our prayers and our sacrifices are a pleasing aroma to him. Think about that for a moment. That when you pray to God, to him it is like a pleasing aroma. Isn't that kind of cool? Well, today as we continue our journey through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we come to a, a pretty lengthy passage that we're going to look at today where Paul focuses on how we as Christians should think and act and behave. And so we're calling today's message a crash course in Christ-like living. We're going to be moving pretty quickly through this passage. We're not going to cover every verse. There's a ton of stuff in there. But to put it another way, we might ask, do we smell like Jesus? Are we spreading his fragrance? Or are we repelling those around us by putting off a distasteful aroma? 
And so in this section of his letter, Paul kind of paints a picture for us with our walk with Christ by, uh, he uses this phrase, put off the old self and put on the new self. And so Christ-like living uh, impacts every single part of our lives as we pursue spiritual change, spiritual growth. That's what we've been talking about in Ephesians. So this morning, we're going to consider a Christ-like lifestyle. That is our goal, our pursuit. And we're going to look at it from four different points of view, four different angles, if you, if you will. So the first thing I want us to see is that a Christ-like lifestyle is different. It's different. I want you to read together with me what Paul says about this different lifestyle. This is Ephesians 4, beginning in in verse 17. Let's read together. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. The word of God. Well, you know that psychologists will tell us that our brains tend to mispredict what will actually bring us happiness. In other words, we think things will bring us happiness, and they, they really don't. We assume that if we achieve certain things in life, that we will find the secret to happiness. For instance, we'll think, I'll, I'll be happy if I just get admitted to the right school. Or I'll be happy if I find the right life partner. Or I'll be happy if I get a work promotion. Or I'll be happy if I have my dream house. And on the list could go. One psychologist observes that this if-then perspective can't be supported by science because each time our brain experiences a success, it moves the goalposts of what success looks like. And so if you got good grades, you got to get then better grades. If you have a good job, now you have to get a better job. If you hit your sales target, now you have to raise your sales target. If you buy a home, then you have to have a new or a larger or a different or a better home. And on and on it goes. And you see, friends, our contentment, our true contentment does not come from getting into the bigger fishbowl, does it? We think it might, but it's just a little bit bigger sameness. True contentment comes from pursuing a different lifestyle, a Christ-like lifestyle. Paul says, you were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And so the first step of living differently is to put off the old self. And that's, that's some hard terminology. Paul doesn't tell us just to put off our old habits and then to follow a, a different set of habits or customs or patterns. 
Paul recognizes that the patterns of our life flow out of our heart. He's not just saying stop doing some bad things and start doing some good things. That's not enough. He's saying put off the old self. The apostle is saying that what you do is you. And so you've got to get rid of the things that characterize you. It's actually as if you are killing yourself. You know, our early American ancestors, the Puritans, they called this process of putting to death the old self, they called it mortification. Mortification, that's the Latin root of mortify is death. Stinky death, mortification. And, and they understood that you have to kill something of yourself in order to get rid of this past. And that kind of mortification idea, that's kind of scary language. You have to put off your old self. Paul says it's being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And you know what's kind of horrible about that statement? Paul writes it in the present tense. He doesn't say you're to put off the old self that was being corrupted. No, he says it is being presently corrupted. That means that there is something in us that is still being corrupted by sinful desires, by the stench of this world, if you will. And when we get into that pattern, the heart can be hardened. And now, this is where then we might start to struggle a bit with all this theology. Because you might be saying, well, wait a second, Rob. I thought we learned earlier in, Ephesus, in Ephesians, in chapters 1 and 2 and 3, we talked about this idea that we are new creatures in Christ. What about that? I thought we were fundamentally made new. Didn't we talk about that? We did. We talked about how we have Christ's righteousness on our behalf. That we're already seated in the heavenly places. That we are made God's own children by his grace on our behalf. God looks at us as precious to himself. Just as his own son. And we have the inheritance of the riches of heaven. That's who we already are. We've talked about that. Numerous times in the first part of Ephesians. So what's going on here? Yes, all those things I just said. That is who we already are. But as new creatures in Christ Jesus, what that fundamentally means is, get this, we are able not to sin. We are able not to sin. Once we were not able not to sin. Get the difference there? But now we are actually able to put off the old patterns. When God's Holy Spirit comes into us, he helps us to do what we cannot do in and of ourselves. The reason the apostle, by the way, has to say this is because sometimes we corrupt the message of God's grace. Some people begin to think that, oh, because I'm a new creature in Christ, I can do anything. Or they begin to think, well, my sin doesn't matter because it's all forgiven. But those are dangerous patterns of thinking. 
And so here's the, the positive of this message. Even in this new nature, this new creation that we are, even in this, if you are struggling with sin, I could ask a we could ask everybody raise their hands. I don't know if you want to do this or not, but how many of you struggle with sin sometimes? All right, we're being honest. I want you to know if you struggle with sin, you're not strange. And you're not alone. It is what we do. We struggle still. And if you're struggling, you're not alone. You see, here's what happens, friends. Satan wants to come along and whisper in your ear and weaken you by saying, you're the only one that screws up. What's the matter with you? People around you, they don't struggle like you do. You're messed up. It's just you. You're broken. And those lies from Satan force our sin underground. And we hide it. And we keep it from one another. Because we're embarrassed. We're ashamed. But that's not what God wants us to do. He wants us to put it off. To put it away. And he wants us to help one another to do that. Because this is who we are. We are subject to this kind of corruption and hardening of our hearts. Even now, as a new creation in Christ. Now that's the positive side. I want you to understand that. To know that you are not unlike other Christ followers. And I hope that that is a small measure of good news to you. But it doesn't stop there either. Because there's, maybe we'd say, a negative side to it. And that is, if I'm not examining my life for sin, then I am terribly vulnerable to it. If I'm not saying, Lord, what are the things in my life that are hardening my heart? What are the attitudes in my mind that are denying the light of your life? If we're not doing that daily examination, then you know what happens? We begin to die a little bit more each day to the joy of God. And so my, I might propose to you, if you, if you feel like you're moving farther away from God, perhaps do this kind of self-examination and say, are there some attitudes, some actions, some stuff in my life that I need to put off in order to experience the newness that God has for me? Notice that the apostle says in very plain words, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. You see, the way we think is really important. And so we don't abuse God's grace and say, well, now I get to do whatever I want because of the grace of God. No, that's cheap grace. That's phony grace. Real grace helps us to understand, I have a new orientation. I have a new spirit of understanding. I don't desire to do the junk of the past anymore. I've recognized how destructive those patterns in my life can be. And now I have a totally new, a different attitude about what is rewarding and what is fulfilling. And therefore, I am going a different way. What does that mean? Well, it means that to put on, in verse 24, to put on the new self. We put off the old self, 
But it's not enough just to put it off. We've got to put something else on, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Isn't that interesting? And so there's not only mortification, putting aside the old self, killing it in some measure, but we are also now able to put on new things, to make the choices, to see the new path, to go the way that is actually beautiful, healthy, wonderful for us. That's what God wants for us. The apostle reminds us that we were made, we were made for this different lifestyle. You were made for what is holy and righteous. And that comes from God, not from ourselves. We are not holy and righteous. We are made for what is holy and righteous, which is God's holiness and righteousness applied to us. This is the different lifestyle of Christ-likeness. Now, Paul concludes this section on being different by listing in verses 25 through 32, 20 or more very specific attitudes, choices, and decisions that we can either put off or put on in order to reflect the difference in our life. So here's a bit of a homework assignment for you. Go home and read verses 25 through 32 and begin to look at, are there some areas I need to put off? Are there some things I need to put on, some things to pursue, some things to run away from? That's your homework assignment as you pursue this different lifestyle. But we need to move on. And so we're going to do that. We see not only is this fragrant lifestyle of Jesus different, but a Christ-like lifestyle is also loving. Number two, loving. Everything Paul says in this next section of Ephesians in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, where we're going next, everything he says here goes back to our spiritual identity. Who are we in Christ? Who are we? Look at verse 1. Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Friends, this is where the Christian life begins, right here. You see, it's not so much about what we do as who we are. See, we can focus all about all the things we do or don't do. I don't do all these things. I do all these things. And we can drive ourselves nuts trying to not do things or do things. But instead, we need to focus on who we are. To say that another way, what we do is going to flow out of who we are. And when we know who we are, then it's not hard to figure out what we're supposed to do, what our aroma is, is to be. And so he says we are to imitate our heavenly father, be imitators of God. Because why? We are his beloved children. To imitate means to follow his example. Because we have been entered into God's family by being born again, we belong to God. We bear his name. We share a family resemblance. And therefore, we are greatly loved. Now, it doesn't stop there. This love continues on because in verse 2, Paul says, walk in love. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's our smell word, a fragrant offering. You know, 
Many people who have read or heard these words, they don't feel greatly loved. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you feel forgotten or lonely or used or underappreciated. You know, we all know that it's not enough just to hear somebody say, I love you. Words mean little unless they're backed up by deeds, by actions. Paul knew this. And that's why he not only declares to us that we are loved by God, he backs it up with solid proof, action. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That is the action that shows us how much God loves us. God was well pleased to sacrifice his son on the cross. Paul says it was a fragrant offering because Jesus voluntarily laid down his life for others. His sacrifice pleased the Father because he offered himself willingly and readily without hesitation. He gave himself completely for us. You know, I suppose that if we had been on Golgotha on that Friday when Jesus was nailed to the cross, I think we would have been repulsed by the odors. Crucifixion was a ghastly way to die. And the Romans intended to make it especially brutal and bloody in order to intimidate the crowds, to show that they were in control. And so it would have been a horrible smell as dead bodies hung on crosses, sometimes for weeks on end. The Romans had mastered the art of cruel killing. And so that day at Calvary, the smell of death was everywhere, lingering, penetrating. But to God, to God, it smelled good. It smelled good. He was well pleased by the sacrifice of his son. And therefore, friends, we are greatly loved and we know it because of what Jesus did for you and for me. This is who we are. This is who we are in the eyes of God. We are his children and we are greatly loved. Those are not mere words, but God's actions prove it. So what does it mean? What does it mean for us to be greatly loved children of God in a world that is filled with the stench of sin? It means that we walk in love, that we live in love, that we freely and we extravagantly share the aroma of Christ-like love with others. But you know what? The love of Christ is radically different than the love of this world, isn't it? We define it very, very differently. When Paul writes this letter to the Christians in the first century, we've talked a bit about this, the history of Ephesus. When he writes this letter in the first century, in places like Ephesus and Athens and Rome and other cities, the moral standards had sunk so low that immorality had become a matter of public indifference. Do it you want when you want it, where you want it, with whomever you want, and do it without shame. Does that sound familiar at all? You see, this false standard of love 
It applied not just to the elite ruling class, but to all the common people as well. It was a virus of uninhibited lust that infected every layer of society. Pagan religion routinely combined idol worship with temple prostitution involving both men and women. Perverse sexuality was accepted as a normal part of Greek and Roman culture and it was defined as love. Well, friends, we too live in a sin-saturated society focused on our own personal self-interest. The internet brings us every form of evil imaginable. We have whatever we want at the click of a button. We can watch it on our TV, on our devices. Modern technology certainly has made life easier, but it also has made it easier to feed our own lusts. And brothers and sisters, this is not the form of love that we are called to. You see, the love of Christ is not selfish. The love of Christ is not self-indulgent. The love of Christ, the love that we extend to others should not include permissiveness or ignore God's basic design for us. That is not true love. A Christ-like lifestyle is different and it is loving with the sacrificial love of Jesus. And as Paul continues, we see that a Christ-like lifestyle is also, number three, distinctive. It is distinctive. I want you to read together with me Paul's call and reminder of our distinctiveness. Verses 8 through 14 of chapter 5. Let's read this together. For at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen. The word of God. And so when Paul wrote to this young church in Ephesus, he knew that they were an island of light in a city filled with darkness. How could that tiny band of believers make a distinctive difference in that great cosmopolitan immoral metropolis that was home to the world-famous temple of the sex goddess Artemis? Well, here in Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 14, Paul gives us the answer. What worked in the first century still works today. In this passage, we see the remarkable results when the distinctive light of God penetrates a dark world. And the first thing I want us to see about light is that light transforms. Light transforms. Paul says in verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, 
But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so we've put off the old self and put on the new. Paul uses another picture here. He doesn't say you were like darkness or you were in darkness. He says, literally, you were darkness. You understand that apart from Christ, we are dark. Darkness represents sin and brokenness and death. And he says, you were that. But when you came to know Jesus, you became light in the Lord. Light in scripture represents God himself. Jesus is the light of the world. And when we come to know Jesus, we too have the light of Christ in us. And so what does Paul say? Walk in the way that you are. Walk as children of light. Act like it. You're in the light, so act like it. You see, coming to Christ is like walking from a pitch black cave and entering out into a room filled with blazing light. But you see, once you come out of the darkness, all of a sudden you see things that you never saw before. When we lived in darkness, we did whatever we wanted to do. But now in the light, we put aside the deeds of darkness and we put on a lifestyle that is fitting for the children of light. Paul spells this out in verse 9. He says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Let's think about those words for a moment. Goodness. Goodness touches how we deal with others. Righteousness involves a new commitment to obey God's commands. And truth demands a deep commitment to live with integrity. These, friends, are our distinctives. And when we pursue these traits in our life, we are distinct from the world. Because let's face it, there is not a lot of goodness and righteousness and truth permeating our world today, is there? And so now we have a new goal in life. Paul outlines that in verse 10. Find out what pleases the Lord. Well, how do I know what pleases the Lord? Paul says, find out. Figure it out. And so no longer can we say, if it feels good, do it. No longer can we say, hey, everybody else is doing it. No longer can we say, well, I don't care what anybody else thinks. This is my life and I'll do whatever I want. No. If we truly want to please the Lord, we will do things his way. We'll find out what his will is. We are no longer free agents making up our moral choices as we drift through life. Rather, we've signed a contract with Jesus. And he's our manager now. As Christians, we believe something stupendous, amazing, that the world doesn't understand at all. We believe there is a God in heaven who has spoken and that his word is authoritative and that he has the absolute right to determine our moral choices, which includes, by the way, what we say and what we do and who we have sex with and how we conduct our business affairs and how we spend our money and all the other choices we make in life. God is invested in those choices. We don't get to do whatever we want. 
And if we're being honest, we'll acknowledge that the world finds these distinctives a bit strange, somewhat mysterious, and possibly even antisocial or even borderline dangerous. People might say that about us when we walk in the light. Because the light transforms us. By the way, that word transformation, it's the same word we get our word metamorphosis. Changing from one thing to another like a butterfly coming out of the, the cocoon. We are transformed by the light of God. But not only does light transform, light also exposes. We well, gotta get moving here. Been lingering too long. Paul, Paul says in verse 11 and 12, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. Friends, there are things that shouldn't even be mentioned in public or in private. No doubt Paul here has in mind the various rituals associated with the temple of Artemis there in, in, in Ephesus. Now it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and it drew worshipers from all over the world, many distant lands. But their idol worship combined overt idolatry with all, every sort of sexual excess. And when Paul speaks of things done in secret, he means a vile form of evil that goes beyond the ordinary acts of rebellion. Evil that is gross and unnatural and perverted. And he says, take no part it's shameful even to speak of these things because the light of God exposes evil for what it is. That's just the truth. Let's move on. Not only does light expose, it transforms, but number three, light awakens. And so this is what Paul says in verse 14. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. When the light of the gospel comes, it wakes us up spiritually from death. And it draws us to Jesus. We call that conversion. We call that salvation. We call that being born again. That is the distinctive life-transforming power of the gospel when we come to know Christ. And this passage shows us what happens when that light of God begins to shine in our world. When author Robert Louis Stevenson was a small child, he was sick a lot of the time. He couldn't go out and play like the other kids, and so he spent a lot of time in his window just staring out at the world going by. And one evening he sat and he watched as a man came down the street lighting the gas lamps. And his nurse said to him, Robert, what are you doing? And he said, I'm watching the man knock holes in the darkness. You see, friends, it's, it's not easy. The world doesn't want the light, but it desperately needs it. We aren't called to save the world. Only God can do that. But we are called to live distinctively, to make a difference. We can't do everything, but we can do something. What we can do, we ought to do. So friends, let's go out and knock some holes in the darkness this week. A Christian lifestyle is different. It is loving, it is distinctive. And then finally, we see that a Christian lifestyle is also 
wise. It is also wise. Paul says in verses 15 through 17, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So here's the sermon in a sentence. Since our time on earth is limited, Christian people, let us make the most of the time we have left. You see, that is true wisdom. The word that Paul uses here that's translated carefully means to be skillful, to be on guard, to look very closely so as to not stumble. It has the idea of exactness and precision and accuracy. I like how one translator put it. He said, uh, translating this verse, be constantly taking heed how accurately you are conducting your lives. Well, let's just face it. Let's be honest for just a moment here. Too many of us are spiritual sluggards. Right? Sometimes we live sloppy spiritual lives. Instead of staying on course with the Lord by putting off sin and putting on righteousness, what do we do? We take exit ramps all the time off of God's road. Let's check this out. How about this? Friends, we live in a world dominated, filled with evil influences and evil individuals. And it is easy to think that Paul is exhorting us to action because the day is short. But actually, he's urging us to take advantage of these opportunities because, what does he say? The days are evil. What that means, friends, is that even in the midst of great evil, there is always opportunities for God's people. We don't have to wring our hands and say, oh, look at all the evil. Instead, we need to make the most of our time. Every day is an opportunity to grab the good, to shun sin in our life. Here's a principle. Every time we can do something good, we should. It should be built into our life. And... When we're not sure what to do. Here's something that somebody taught me years ago. One of my mentors. He said, whenever you're not sure what to do, simply just do the next right thing. So often we're thinking way down the road. I don't know what to do. I don't know the will of God. I don't know. It's my button. Step back and just say, what is the next right thing for me to do today? That is wise, my friends. And that's what God wants us to do. Do you ever wonder why house cats can climb up a tree, but then sometimes they don't know how to get down? You know, the fire department's got to come and rescue the kitty. I read this article, and one, one animal expert has a theory. She claims that at some point, mother cats teach kittens how to descend from a tree. Just like they teach them, you know, all these other things that they, you know, innate cat behavior, how to hunt, how to bury their waste, how to deal with prey, how to approach an unknown person or a dog and so forth. So her theory is that cats that get stuck in trees are cats that were taken from their mothers before they got the lesson about how to get out of trees. Now it's just a theory, but... We know from scientific studies that a great deal of animal behavior is learned 
Learned behavior, it's not just instinctual. There's certainly instinct, but there's a lot of learned behavior. And so studies done on all kinds of animals, tigers and wolves and cheetahs and birds, lizards, fish, even ants. These studies show that animals learn how to be a particular kind of animal by watching and observing and imitating their mothers or their fathers or their other members of their animal group. They learn by imitation. And so friends, as we wrap up this morning, I want you to understand this. In that same way, we learn how to follow Jesus by watching him. By watching him, how do we do that? Well, we spend time in the gospels we drink deeply from God's word, understanding who Jesus is. And we begin to emulate him and his way. And we also learn by watching and imitating other followers of Jesus. And that's a bit sobering, isn't it? You understand that there might be other Christians watching you and learning how to follow Jesus from how you do it? Wow. We pick up the sweet aroma of Christ-like living by being in the presence of Jesus and his people. And so friends, we must not live as the rest of the world lives because God created us in Christ Jesus for holiness and righteousness and true beauty. That is his design for us. So may the pursuit of this sweet aroma. Dominate your lives and my life. And may we together as the family of God share the sweet aroma of Jesus with our community. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that you will guide us